Let's open up our Bibles. Uh, those of you that have your Bibles will be in Matthew 14. Those of you that don't have Bibles with you, and if you'd like to follow along, which we highly recommend, because you have to keep me honest, make sure I'm telling you exactly what's there, then raise your hand nice and high, and we'll get a Bible around to you. So again, if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up nice and high. Bibles will appear miraculously from the back. Matthew 14, also going to have you mark one other place, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't know where those books are, Matthew and 2 Corinthians, then you, your Bible that you're receiving or that you brought with you has a table of contents in the front. And you can just simply go to that, look up 2 Corinthians and Matthew and, and mark those pages. And while we're doing that, and as those pages stop turning, when everybody gets there, uh, we will pray, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Father, we are uh, thankful for this chilly place to meet. And we just think of uh, the ease with which we can worship you here. And the great sacrifices that are made all over the world just to be with God's people. That in our country we take so lightly the gathering together of ourselves. Almost as an insignificant thing. And yet, Lord, we see those, the testimony of those around the world that will risk life and limb to gather together in your name. And Lord, I pray we would be wise discerning the body, that we would recognize, Lord, that there is no such thing as a solo Christian, but you have put us in the body, you have baptized us into the body by your spirit, and you have given gifts differing to each one of us. And that only in the community of the faith are we truly uh, complete as the body, Lord. Each one having different gifts, different abilities. Lord, this morning I pray that you would stir us up. That your spirit would stir us up. Not a false fire, Lord, but a true fire in our hearts from you. Pray that you'd open our ears to hear, our eyes to see. Any walls in our hearts, Lord, against you? Anything we're, we're still mad at you about, Lord? I pray that as we worship you in song and in your word, that these things would just melt away. And that your love, your, your selfless, eternal, unconditional love would break through even the thickest walls in our hearts, Lord. And that the, the light would shine into those dark places. We pray this, that, that this study is used for, for your kingdom in our lives and in this community, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen, amen. So we are in Matthew 14, uh, Matthew 13, having been the parables chapter, we're reading this account of the life, the works, and the words of Jesus as it was recorded by this previous tax collector named Matthew, a Jewish man. And he has recorded all these things with a distinctly Jewish uh, view on things, uh, differing from the other Gospels in some ways. In some ways, uh, the stories are shared the same, but from different perspectives. Today we have uh, the account of how John the Baptist lost his head. Beautiful. This is not the one the kids will be doing today. Uh, they'll be doing the feeding of the 5,000. Thank, thankfully for that. Um, but nonetheless, we have these, these two accounts. John the Baptist and how he was martyred. And also the feeding, what we call the feeding of the 5,000, which is really a misnomer because more than 5,000 were fed. And interestingly... Both very important stories, the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only other miracle, the only miracle before the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels. So if God wants to repeat it four times, 
it must be really, really significant, right? So I think we ought to pay attention to and heed the lessons that we learn from, from this story, this event. So we've been uh, looking as Jesus has been uh, healing and teaching and casting out demons and challenging the Pharisees. And a few chapters ago, we saw John the Baptist in prison. And we heard of his uh, discouragement there and his confusion there. Hey, uh, sent disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, hey, are you the one? Are you the coming one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? And he, he was trying to put these things together in his mind as he sat in prison and, and while Jesus was preaching about setting captives free. And so he began to, to be a little discouraged there. And so Jesus sends to him and says, hey, tell John the things that you've seen, the things that you've heard, you know, to encourage him uh, in, in who Jesus really was. And we haven't heard anything from John the Baptist since that point. But now he comes back up in our discussion again. So last we left John, he was in, in prison. And that's the last we knew, we knew of him. But things change a little bit today. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. So Herod the Tetrarch uh, is a son, for those of you that like the historical side of things, Herod the Tetrarch was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that was alive uh, and reigning during the time when Jesus was born. He tried to have all the infants and babies killed uh, around the time Jesus was born. That's Herod the Great. He has since died, and his sons are operating in the kingdom. There are... um, ruling in different areas. The Tetrarch means just a a quarter. So Herod was ruler of a quarter. He ruled specifically uh, Galilee and this region called Perea where John the Baptist had been ministering by the Jordan River. So that's where Herod, Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas, that's where he was ruling. And so he hears this report about Jesus and and again the struggle at this time was who is this guy Jesus? I mean who is this guy? He must be a prophet that's resurrected from the dead. Or maybe he's Elijah come back from the dead. They, they, believe, they had no trouble believing in resurrection at this point. They believed that, that that's why these powers were possible. Because this was someone who had, been, had died and was raised from the dead and therefore had these powers. But for Herod, I think he's a little bit nervous here because he hears of these things going on. He says, oh no, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. But we don't know yet how John the Baptist got dead. We haven't studied that yet. We haven't read that yet. But, and Herod's responsible for that. So I think he's got a little bit of a guilty conscience. I think he's a little worried because he didn't want to have to kill John the Baptist. But he did. And he, was, he feared John the Baptist because John was a holy and a just man. And I'm thinking, man, if I, he's thinking, if I kill him, boy, God's going to be mad at me. And that's the last thing I need. So now, when he, he hears of these things, he thinks, oh no, John the Baptist is back to get me. So he's a little bit nervous, and he says, this is John the Baptist. Well, how did John the Baptist get dead? Verse 3 says, for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him, we knew that, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So what was Herodias's beef with John? What was why did he do it for her sake? Well, we knew he had bound him, put him in prison. That's where he had been. We'll go on to see what happens next. But this little historical tidbit, I'm glad I'm not born into royalty because, man, it get, things are a mess. I'm going to try to work my way through a little bit of this. Um, these marriages, a lot of times in royal families, there are a lot of intermarriages because they try to keep the power uh, kind of to themselves. and They don't want to bring anybody else in. So there's a lot of intermarrying. Well, Herod the Great had a number of sons. One of those sons was, was this Herod Antipas we're talking about here. Another son was Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. So Herodias, if you're following, would have been Herod Antipas's half-niece. Okay, we're all together. Now. You're going to be quizzed on this in heaven, so you better have this straight. Yes, I'd like to come into heaven. Well, tell me, who was Herodias? No, you're not going to... Just for those of you that like historical stuff. So this is his half-niece. So it's a little bit of an incestuous relationship. Not only that, 
they had, uh, Herod Antipas had gone to Rome where uh, Herod Philip, that's who he's talking about here, his brother, it's his half-brother, that's where his half-brother Philip lived with his wife Herodias. And when he goes there, he meets her and they fall in love or lust or something like that and they run off together back to Galilee. And that's where Herod Antipas then divorces his wife, who was a Nabataean king, an Arabian, or a Nabataean queen, an Arabian queen. And these two, Herodias and Herod Antipas, uh, marry one another. And so it's not only it's incestuous, but it's adulterous, because that's what John the Baptist said. This was your brother Philip's wife. And he stole his half-brother's wife, which was his half-niece, away. And it's a... Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. You know how long it took me to memorize that? And you don't even know if I'm right. I had to watch six episodes of Dallas to try to figure this out. So Herod had laid hold of John, uh, put him in prison, bound him up there because of his wife. Well, what was the beef again with his wife? Because verse 4, John had said to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Don't you appreciate someone who speaks the truth? And we know John the Baptist is that kind of guy. He is a fiery preacher. He's the one that stood in front of the Pharisees and said, you brood of vipers. I mean, he was not concerned with political correctness. He was not concerned. And look, what I appreciate about John the Baptist, and I think we need a little bit of John the Baptist in our day and age, I think we're too politically correct sometimes. And I'm all for sharing the, listen, I'm all for sharing the truth in love. And I'm not sure John the Baptist had that lesson. I'm not sure if that was how he shared that. Um, He was definitely a straight shooter. But this is what I want you to notice. That he wasn't afraid to say it to Herod's face. Now, I don't know how they got that meeting. Herod had heard about uh, John the Baptist. Herod had heard about his preaching. And, and said, hey, I would love to have an audience with this guy. So at some point they met, and John the Baptist had a message for this ruler, this leader. So it wasn't just that John the Baptist was around the tents uh, of people that he was with saying, can you believe how Herodias rules this place? Can you believe, or how, how Herod Antipas rules? Can you believe what he's doing? And we do that, don't we? We complain in our tents. But if you stood face to face with that person, would you tell them the same thing that you're telling to your neighbor or to your wife or to your husband or to your kids? Are, are, are you willing to do that? And if you're not, maybe you shouldn't say it behind closed doors. Because you see, we're, we're very influenced by power and people. And we don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. We want people to like us. But John the Baptist said what had to be said. He stood up in, in a... In a corrupt age in a corrupt time and he said this isn't right it's not lawful it's not proper are we willing to do that you know we we read this, the verse the truth will set you free well in this case the truth got him put in prison another question for you well actually i'll save that question let's move on a little bit let's i'll save that question for a little bit so he asked this question. John said to him, is it, not, it is not lawful for you to have her. And verse 5, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. You see, Herod, being a politician and being a man who did not have an internal moral compass, he did not have an internal sense of consciousness, his direction and his choices came merely from how it appeared to other people, or how it would affect his relationship with other people. You know that is a very dangerous place to be? That is a very, the Bible says the fear of man, or worrying about what people think, and worrying about what people are going to say, and worrying about how people are going to respond, the fear of man brings a snare, it's a trap. And we'll see that he trapped himself because of his fear of people. Because you know you can't always please everybody all the time. And so you end up having no definite anchor or direction in your own life. Everything that you decide is just based on outside circumstances. And one of the things that the Word of God gives us is an internal anchor, an internal compass, that it doesn't matter what the circumstances, the truth doesn't change. And I've got that. And I'm thankful for it because I am, you are looking at a person 
who has been in the past and still struggles with pleasing people. And I know I'm not alone. And trust me, as a pastor, God, used, God brought me into this place to break me of that habit. He doesn't, this wasn't about you guys. <laughs> this was about me. God said, I, I'll get you in a place where you have to learn that you cannot serve me and please people. You cannot make your decision based on how the congregation is going to react or based on what the most prominent people in the church think. And it's one of the hardest things because when you're trying to make decisions on behalf of the Lord, when you're, when you're shepherding his flock, there are, everybody's got an opinion, right? Everybody's got an opinion. And the most challenging thing I think personally that I face, and I would say that you face as a Christian in your own home, is what does the Lord want me to do? Not how do I feel, not how, what will they think, what does the Lord want me to do? It's a question that we ask ourselves, and that's a challenging question because sometimes it's hard to hear. You've got to get alone. You've got to get to a place where you can hear his still, small voice. So he feared the multitude. He was a political guy. He didn't want, they, they knew John the Baptist was a prophet. They respected him. If Herod had him killed, there would have been a rebellion, potentially. So here's what I want to do, but oh, I can't do it because what will the people think? So it gets worse for him. So, but, verse 6, when Herod's birthday was celebrated, and they knew how to celebrate a birthday, the daughter of Herodias, uh, we know from history her name was Salome, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, and other gospel writers record that, she, that he said, up to half of my kingdom. And this must have been some kind of dance. I'm guessing it was probably a sensual dance, probably about a 14, 15-year-old girl. She was the daughter of his current wife, Herodias, and her previous husband, Philip, uh, Herod Philip. And so she does this sensual dance. They're all, you know, getting lit at the party here. Uh, I'm assuming that. It doesn't say that. But I'm just making, a, I think, what's a safe assumption. And, and they're, they're not in there. He's not in his proper mind. And you know that's part of the sin of drunkenness. Is, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that, so don't take this to the bank. But I would say that that's maybe what helped him to uh, be impulsive in his oath. Hey, such a gr- hey, I, I want to reward your dance, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. You know how we've done that, right? We just say something stupid in an impulsive moment and go, oh, you know, my mouth just wrote a check and I'm not sure I can catch that. He promises her. So she, having been prompted by her mother, now we, she goes back, you read the other gospel, she goes back to mom and says, Mom, Herod just offered me whatever I want, up to half the kingdom. What should I ask for? And I'd have been like, half the kingdom sounds good to me. I mean, that's, that'll suit me all right. I can rule half a kingdom. I can be a, you know, a 16th arc or whatever you would, half of a quarter, an eighth arc. I'm not a mathematician, so please, for all the math teachers are going, no, he doesn't know math. But what does she ask for? Look how, look how revenge can cloud your decision making. She says, give me John the Baptist's head here, now, on a platter. Oh, that's so lovely. Aren't they just lovely people? I want John the Baptist's head. I want to silence the voice of truth. And they think they can. They think they can. And so still in her heart, I don't, know how, you know, I don't know how much time has passed since John. He's been in prison, some estimate, about a year. And she still has not let it go. She's still very upset, very mad, because the truth was shown her. How do you respond to the truth? This is where I was going to ask earlier. When someone confronts you, how many of you know the truth hurts sometimes? When we're forced to look into the mirror, we look at ourselves, it's not always pleasant to hear. And there are two distinct responses. There's probably more, but I'll challenge you with two distinct responses. Number one, we confess it. We deal with our pride. We deal with our ego. And we say, you know what, honey? Because <laughs> that's who usually brings it. You know what, honey? <laughs> you were right. Remember Fonzie? I was, he could just not, couldn't say the word wrong. 
you were right. Uh, forgive me. I, I was wrong when I did that. I was wrong when I said that, you know. And, and sometimes we have to confront, you know, do people in your life know, you know your attitude can challenge and change whether or not a person will confront you about the truth or not. There are some of you that your whole body language says, I don't want to hear it. I, I know I'm wrong, but I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me about it. And others of you are so humble and so open that there's almost a freedom to come to you. And, and, and for, there's this, this freedom of relationship to be able to be honest with one another and say, and, and we're told, you know, to, if you see your brother overtake, overtaken in a fault, Go to such a one with humility. You don't go and say, you know, maybe, you know, I have the ministry of John the Baptist. That is wrong. You know, you're a sinner. You go with humility because you recognize you got things in your life that aren't right either. And so you go and, and you bring the truth. And how do you respond to that, Christian? Does your pride well up and say, ah, who do they think they are telling me I'm wrong? Or are you teachable? And that was Herodias. She was just so full of pride Instead of looking at what they did and their sinful lifestyle, they wanted to silence the voice of truth. So bitterness and revenge, they, they say if you want to get revenge, dig two graves. One for you and one for the person who you're trying to get revenge against. It has been eating her up. She says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Lovely thing. Uh, and the king was sorry, verse 9. Why was he sorry? Because he particularly loved John the Baptist? I think he was sorry he made a stupid oath. And now, you see, when he made the oath, look what it says. He says, he was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. You see, it wasn't because he really felt bad about John the Baptist and this was an unavoidable situation. He made a promise in front of a crowd. And now, if he didn't keep that promise... They were going to question him. It was going to look bad for him. So again, you see how he falls into this trap of all of his decisions being made just based on how it's going to make him look. See, he didn't want to kill John the Baptist. I mean, he wanted to, but he wouldn't because it wasn't a good political move. But now, through his impulsiveness, he's worked himself into a corner. And he's got to do the very thing he doesn't want to do because people are watching. I pray that you live your life not before people so much as before the Lord. That the Lord is watching. And that you say, I can or I can't do this because the Lord is watching. That's who we live. If, look, we, we're all into accountability groups, and I'm not against accountability groups, but I can only be as accountable as I make myself. I can lie to you so easily. But if you're accountable to the Lord then an accountability group between people is easy. Because first there is honesty and openness before. If you say you're in the light, but you walk in darkness, you lie and do not tell the truth. You don't practice the truth. And so this was the issue uh, that, that Herod has to struggle with. Two wrongs don't make a right. He's, he's backed into a corner. So he says, all right, he sends the executioners. They go to, they, so he sent the, and John beheaded, had John beheaded in prison, verse 10. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Here's what you asked for. Ooh, yeah, okay, mom, here you go. It wasn't her beef. She was just doing what her mom said. Lovely relationship, isn't it there? We see that's a beautiful thing. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Did that make things better? Does revenge ever make things better? Does it ever change the truth? It doesn't. It doesn't. Challenging, too. First uh, mention we have of a martyrdom here in the New Testament. John the Baptist martyred. People being set free. People being healed. And John the Baptist then, uh, couldn't Jesus have opened the prison doors? Couldn't Jesus have secured his release somehow? Sure he could have. But John had a ministry. It was to point people to Christ. And he'd done that. He had run his course. He had run his race. And now it was time for him to fade out of the picture so that Jesus could continue to be the preeminent one. So John's disciples will actually come to Jesus. So he brings the head to the mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. 
So John the Baptist was not just his predecessor, his, his forerunner, but it was his, he was his cousin. They were relatives, grew up together, knew each other from the time they were born. They were only born, I think, six months apart, Jesus and John the Baptist. So they're the same age. They ministered together. John had baptized Jesus. And now Jesus gets word that he's been beheaded by the government, by the, by the local ruler. And even Jesus in his humanity says, you know what? I, I need to go and, and get alone with the Lord. I need to get alone with God. And so he departs. You need a time to depart and be by yourself. We are so filled with um, uh, images and media and, and input and, and stimulus that we see here Jesus says, you know what? I, I've got to go and I've got to be by myself. No doubt grieving morning but look what happens when the multitudes heard it they followed him on foot from the city so somebody notices jesus in a boat heading across the the sea of galilee and the sea of galilee is not that big i mean it's large but it's not that big and you can see from one side to the other i think those of us that are going to israel will be on we're going to have fish lunch on the sea of galilee i'm excited for that Uh, so they see Jesus going across and, hey, the master is, is on the move. Let's go. Come on, grab your stuff. Let's get on. Let's see where he's going. And so this whole crowd, Jesus is just trying to get alone to grieve. And yet the crowd of people follow him. And there he gets out of the boat and there's a whole multitude of people. So much for me time, right? And, and when Jesus, verse 14, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude And he was moved with frustration. And he said to them, give me a break, would you, people? I'm just trying to grieve here. Go back, go home, come back tomorrow. Give me 24 hours by myself, please. I can't catch up. This ministry thing is wearing me out. I can never, you guys are everywhere I go. Leave me alone. Can, Can you picture Jesus saying that? He was moved with what? Compassion. And I like to circle that word moved. Because a lot of times we have compassion, but our compassion doesn't move us to action. Right? Jesus was, was moved with compassion for them. And he moved, moved them to action. And he healed their sick. Sometimes God calls us to minister when we're not in the mood. Sometimes God calls us to meet a need when we just don't feel like it. Jesus always had time for people. He always he found time for himself when he could. You know, for me, it's like five or six in the morning when everybody's quiet or like 10 or 11 at night when people have gone to bed already. When the, the house is quiet, that's when I get my alone time with the Lord. I sometimes can grab some time during the day, but the phone is ringing and people are stopping in. And I like that. I want to be available. So I have to be creative with my alone time with my me time i have to get it when i can because the minute i say to Kay, hey Kay, can you just you know uh just tell when people call tell them i'm studying and then i and i hear the, the phone ring and uh steve someone yeah I, I i gotta take it i gotta take it i can't not take that and they were always trying to protect jesus you know the people were bringing their kids to jesus their sticky fingers and and you know covered with dirt and the m&m candy colors on their fingers and and they, oh, no, no, leave Jesus alone. He doesn't like sticky fingers. And they said, hey, Jesus said, no, 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 let the kids come to me. They're all trying, always trying to protect him. But he was always, he, he never turned people away. Not people that wanted him. He will not turn you away if you come to him. He has compassion on you. And he will not turn you away. He's not, uh, he's not sleeping. He's not slumbering. He's not exhausted. He's God. Now here he's God in the flesh and so no doubt tired. But even still, the character of God He has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. Now, verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into villages and buy themselves food. Now, again, I like this. Jesus has been teaching them all day, and and now... They're looking at, the disciples are looking at their watches going, man, he's going on a long time. I mean, he's just, he's got like a Calvary Chapel pastor or something. You know, he just keeps going and preaching and preaching. And man, it's getting late. I don't think he realizes what time it is. And 
So they have a suggestion for Jesus. And don't you love that when we have suggestions to, for Jesus to tell him how, what needs to happen? Here, Jesus, we've, we've had a little meeting and we've decided that this, you know, you know this is a deserted place. I mean, Food Lion and Walmart are miles away. Um, there's no restaurants. And the hour is late. Things are closing. Uh, these people need food. And so we feel that the best thing to do would be, Jesus, for you to send them away so that they can go and they can get themselves food. And Jesus said, hey, that's a great idea, guys. I, I did the hour. I got, time got away from me. Boy, I, I should have thought of that. Is that what Jesus said? <laughs> I, this, is, this is great. Verse 16, Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there are actually more than 5,000 people. And I just, I just see a smirk on Jesus' face. I, I don't know what you see. I, I see a, a little glimmer in his eye. Because, see, he already knows what he's going to do. We, we read that in, I think, John's gospel. He already had a plan. He did this to test them. And sometimes God tests us. He, so he says to them, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. Now, that is startling jaw-dropping. Now, the disciples look at the crowd. I mean, just sprawled out. What would 10,000 people look like? Remember, it's 5,000 men plus women and children. I mean, the children are all running all over the place, and the moms are chasing them. Come back here. Come back here. And the 10,000 people, that's a huge crowd. It's like a stadium. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you start a catering business from nothing and feed people? And so... Have you ever catered a meal for 50 people? 100? John, what's the most you've done? 2,000 people. Okay, so now we've got 10,000 and, and really no resources. You know, they're, 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 there's a little bit of resources. And he says, you give them something to eat. Jesus, have you looked at these people? Jesus, have you seen the crowd? You have challenged us to do the impossible. You see, this is a living parable. The, the issue is not catering business. The issue is not bread in, in and of itself. It is the miracle, but there's more going on here. You see, the school of discipleship is now in session. Jesus is going to teach them not something they just need for that day. He's going to teach them something they need for the rest of their lives in ministry. And it's a lesson that everyone in this room needs to understand. If you are going to walk with God and if you want to be used by God in any capacity at all, you must understand the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, which we will get to in just a minute. So you give them something to eat. Jaws drop. Uh, they begin to calculate. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. I mean, Jesus, we, we managed to find, the Gospel of John tells us they found a little lad with five barley loaves. Barley is an inferior uh, type, makes an inferior type of bread. It's more coarse than a loaf made from wheat. So we have these five little, and they're not like loaves of bread that we get at the grocery store. They're like biscuits, like little muffins, and, and two little sardines. So the, the resources are vastly in, uh, inferior to the need. I mean, like it's not even close. Uh, if they could call Millie's up in Michigan, I think it's in Michigan. Maybe you've read this recently in the news. This, oh, Mally's, Mally's Sports Bar and Grill in Southgate. Detroit uh, just came up with an absolutely ridiculous burger. It weighs 185.6 pounds. According to Guinness World Records, uh, it's the largest, world's largest commercially available hamburger. The owner of the restaurant, has they have a half-pound house burger, a one-pound Big Daddy, a three-pound Jumbo, a 10-pound Monster, and even a behemoth that tips the scale at 50 pounds and costs $200. But lately, they've come up with this absolutely ridiculous burger, 200 pounds of 80-20 beef and sculpted into a patty that takes three men to lift it into the oven, where it cooks for 16 hours and then rests for another eight. It's topped with a proportional amount of bacon, cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, and pickles, and then crowned with a 26-inch wide bun. So if you order it at the restaurant... You have to give them 72 hours notice, and it costs you $499. Uh, 
Um, or if, you, <laughs> if, you have, if you're daring, you can take a team of uh, 30 people, and if you can polish it off in an hour or less, they give it to you free. But that's still 6.2 pounds of burger per team member. So they didn't have, oh, by the way, they can deliver it for $2,000 to your house as well. John, see, if you're running short some week, you just call up Mally's. So it's not like they had this whopping, absolutely ridiculous loaf of bread that, well, if we cut pieces small enough, maybe if we break off small, we, maybe we can stretch it to meet the need. The kids don't eat much, you know, and moms, no doubt, will share theirs with the kids. But they find this little kid, and somehow they wrestle his lunch away from him, you know. He was running out the door, got to follow Jesus, mom. Wait, come back, Abe, get your lunch. Everybody else had some, but they weren't going to share theirs. You know, I got some, but I'm not sharing it. We have here only, notice the word only. Because you look in your life and you say only, a lot. And because it's only, because you figure it's too small, then I just won't do anything at all. For some reason, we have this mentality that it's, we either got to go big or go home, right? And that's not a biblical mentality. That it's got, we need a big budget, and we need a big church, and we need a big attendance, and we need a big staff, and all these big things we got to do, because we want to do big things for God, so we need big things to do that. Trust me. I met a pastor, pastor at a church of 20,000 people on the West Coast. He said, I would give anything for a church of 500 committed people. He said, you can change the world. You can change the world with 12 people that are committed to the Lord. It's not about big. It's about, hey, we only, they thought we only have this. It's insignificant. Jesus says to me, it's significant. I can use that. I said, God, all I can do is pound nails. All I can do is drive nails. And he took me to Ecclesiastes where he said, the words of the preacher were like well-driven nails. He says, you can drive nails. I can use that. But all I can do is sew. But all I can do is sing. All I can do is play the guitar. I don't have much education. I only have a little education. I only have a little time. I only have a little money. I only have a little skill. We only have a little bit of resources. And Jesus says what? Bring them to me. See, it doesn't matter if you can't give everything. If you can give something of your time, something of your skill, something of your ability, you just take whatever it is that you have and you say, Lord, I know it's not much. I talked with a couple from the church. They were involved in the youth ministry and they're, they're, they're a young couple. They have three young kids now. And, and I remember we were sitting around going, oh, just, you know, how are we going to, we, we don't have much, uh, many people working in youth right now. And, and they said, look, we can't, we can't do this, but we can do this. And I said, hey, praise the Lord. That's great. Then you do that. And that's how it works, folks. Whatever it is, that little thing, don't feel like it's nothing. It's something to the Lord, and he can use it. Bring them to me. He says, now, here's where we discuss. This is the main point, I think. For me, this is the main point. He's asked them to do the impossible, and their resources are absolutely insufficient. They are insufficient. I am insufficient. You are insufficient. Now, you've marked 2 Corinthians 3, right? Let's go there. Because this is what you have to know. The minute you come to the Lord thinking that the Lord is somehow um, uh, blessed to have you, somehow you, you, know, you should see what I bring to the Lord. Church, this church is lucky to have me. You bet you believe that. Yep. I'm a real blessing to the kingdom. I don't know how the kingdom would happen without me. I like what Paul says back in, in, just look back a couple of verses in chapter 2. Verse 16 says, to one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And he asks this question, and who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? Is Billy Graham sufficient? Is Chuck Smith sufficient? Is D.L. Moody sufficient? Who is sufficient for these things? Now go down to verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, We have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. 
You see, the bread wasn't from them. Their sufficiency is going to be in bringing it to Christ. And Christ will take that little and he'll make it sufficient. To be sufficient means to be enough, right? And I look at ministry. You know, if you had told me someday, I mean, already what God has done in my life has been exceedingly abundantly more than I ever thought. I mean, I still can't understand. I listen. I don't often listen to my sermons, but I listened last week to my sermon because sometimes I want to see what in the world I'm saying up here every week. And I thought, it's a miracle that anybody comes here. I mean, I'm not trying, this is not a false pride or anything like that. I'm just being serious, you know. Uh, I remember when I first, like the first year of ministry, I called up Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I said, is there someone around there that knows how to prepare a sermon that can tell me how to do that? Because I don't know how to, I've been preaching a year now and I have no idea what I'm doing. Is any, can anybody help me? And no one could help me. Um, so I still don't know how to do this. I'm being serious. <laughs> You're like, oh, he's a, you know, he's such a kidder. Folks, I'm serious. For 14 years, I was a horseshoer. I didn't know how to lead a Bible. I didn't know how to prepare a Bible study. But this, my sufficiency is of Christ. And I don't know what it is for you. I look at what's happening in Colombia, down at, not South America, here in Fluvanna. There, there's like 23 kids coming out now to, the kid, now to the kids club there. They started with like five, I think, or something like that. And it's almost as if God is just sucking kids into Columbia. I mean, people are moving there with children because their sufficiency is of Christ. And he is making these things sufficient. So we need to move along. Bring them here to me. He commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave. He blessed and broke and gave. First, he says, Lord, you've seen Gene's offering. You've seen Rick's offering. You've seen Joanne's offering. Lord, would you bless that? Father in heaven, would you bless what they're offering? And then what did he do? Broke it. He broke it. And then he gave. Broke it. And he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. Jesus just didn't sat, sit back and say, okay, guys, step back. Watch me work. I'll feed these guys. You know, you guys, oh, ye of little faith, think you can't feed 5,000. I'll show you how to feed 5,000 people. He didn't do that. He involved them, didn't he? There's an old proverb that says, tell me and I'll forget. Show me and I might remember. Involve me and I'll understand. And so Jesus is desperately trying to get these guys to understand it's a living parable. They're involved in this teaching themselves. And he's teaching them that you are not sufficient. You bring the little you have to me. I then give to you. And that's what you take to other people. And they are distributing. They're carrying these these baskets. And Jesus, the, the bread just keeps coming. This is the first distributorship of Wonder Bread. (laughs) no heckling (laughs) and this is still how it's supposed to work what you receive here you know we're receiving from the lord right We, we have the word of god so we are giving our time our mind our attention to the lord for this time lord we don't have much time we've got this hour on sunday morning and, but we're going to give it to you. And we're going to let you give to us. And God wants us to be conduits, not sponges. Too many Christians are Christian sponges. A sponge receives and holds. A pipe is a conduit. It carries from one place to another. And we worry when we give that somehow we're going to end up short. And these guys don't come. There's 12 baskets left over. So, you know, if you're a Christian sponge, God's got to squeeze you to get something out of you. And he will. He'll squeeze you gently at first and then a little more pressure until, until he, because he, he, he wants you to be involved. What, can you imagine being one of these disciples? And like every time you come up with a basket, you, you hand it out to this group sitting over here and they're all sitting in groups and, and they, they take the basket back to Jesus and there's more bread. Where's it coming from? How's he doing this? But they just keep handing it out and handing it out, and handing it out, 
and handing it out. Till, verse 20 says, till they all ate and were filled. It wasn't just they all had a morsel. They all ate. They gorged themselves. Because, and how do we know that? It says they were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. So catch that. In other words, they'd eaten so much, they said, oh, we couldn't eat another bite. You've done that. You've been to the buffet, right? You've got to get your money's worth at a buffet. So you eat until you can't you eat until you're filled because you're not leaving there until you've got your money's worth. If it kills you, it hurts you to do it. I'm, and that's me. I'm the finisher in our house. Are you the, I don't know who the fit. Like, I don't know what it is. I didn't grow up, you know, in a poor home or anything like that, but I just can't stand to leave food on my plate. So I'll eat it, you know, and the kids, hey, you done with that? You know, give that to dad. Everybody knows, give the plate to dad. Dad will eat it. I think our first date, Helga and I, I think I did, you can eat that. <laughs> I mean, we paid for that, you know, not giving it back. <laughs> so they ate and were filled. They couldn't eat anymore. They had seconds and thirds till they were filled and that there was still bread left over that they just couldn't eat. And notice how many baskets are left over. So they all ate and were filled. Even the little boy that gave his little five loaves and two fish, he he got more out of it, I think, than he put in. He was filled. And there were 12 baskets. You think that's a coincidence? 12 baskets left over. How many disciples are there? 12. The basket full. They sat with their baskets going, I don't know how he did it. I, I didn't think it could be done. They're just, they're just eating. I'm sure it's a quiet. They're, they're just eating, shaking their heads, going, oh, man, are we in trouble. And they're eating the Wonder Bread. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, again, more than 5,000 But here's what I want you to take away. We already talked about the fact that you are not sufficient. And you have to recognize that. You've got to know that. You are not sufficient. Because if you think you are sufficient, you won't need Christ. Then you think you can do ministry in your own power. But here's the other thing. And I think we learned this principle in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard from me. The things you've learned from me, I want you to take those things and teach them to faithful men who can teach others also. There's this four-pronged, down-the-line stepping of dissemination of, of truth. Paul says, I taught you, you teach others, so that those others can teach others also. And God multiplies that stuff. You can learn one thing this morning. Hey, you're not sufficient. You can tell a thousand people that same truth that never gets stale. It never disperses. It's always there. So I think this is more about uh, ministry as well than just, I think it's about distributing truth. The word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And God has put you in the distribution business, not the sponge holding business. He wants you to tell others the truth of God. What did he tell Peter later on? He said, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, know that you're insufficient, but if you love me, you feed my sheep. I'll be with you. The truth will come from me. And that's the challenge this morning. Are you a sponge or a pipe with your money? Twelve. Ba- Look, we're, we're worried that if we give, you know, we are, we're just having enough to, to meet the bills this month. And if we put anything in the box... Somehow we're not going to make it. You don't know God. And I could, if we got testimonies, we'd, they'd be all over the place in this room uh, of, of giving. God says, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I will provide seed for the sower and bread for food. I will give you something that you can cast out and I'll make sure that you have something to eat as well. If you become a giver, just in a general sense, God makes sure you always have what you need to. There will always be a basket full of fragments for you to enjoy yourself after you're through giving it out. And that word, see, here's the truth about the word of God. You won't own it till you give it out. You won't own it till you give it out. You may come here and you hear it and you take it home, you think about it a little bit, and it's gone. But if you take it from here and you go home and you teach the dog, 
or the cat. You can't get the cat to sit still long enough to listen. Or maybe you can if you scratch it or something like that. But he's not really interested anyway. Cats, you know. And I get emails from the cat lovers after that. Okay. People ask if animals go to heaven. I'm, uh, I better not go there. Never mind. Won't go there. <laughs> uh, but here's the truth. Once you start to teach others, then you will really start considering the truth that you've been taught yourself. You will really start to consider what that means for you, right? That's the great secret, secret of being a teacher. You're the greatest learner. And it solidifies that truth, and then you own it. And then you own it. So uh, I hope this has challenged you. Again, I think if you leave with one thing burning in your mind, who is sufficient for these things? What is God calling me? What, is, what impossible thing is God calling us to as a church? What, it's beyond building a church building. That's, that's, that's the, anybody can do that. It, it's ministry in Columbia. It's, it's ministry to your neighbors. It's going to, you know, here. It's doing, it's doing whatever God has called you to do. That, that you think that's not possible. And then trusting him for the sufficiency to do it. Knowing that he's called you to it. He wants you to join him. He wants you to be part and involved in, in the miraculous in this world. Don't you think? And that is so exciting and so challenging. But it is so exciting. Having watched it firsthand in a variety of ways and you guys having seen it, I can't wait to see what the Lord has when the Lord calls this church, hey, we want you to have a trade school. A trade school of discipleship. We want you to start an orphanage in, in Ethiopia. Lord, who's sufficient for these things? Not us. But hey, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just long to see um, and to be part of, of your miraculous work, Lord. So many things. Uh, I, I pray that you challenge us with the impossible. Like you've challenged so many through the ages. I think of the great saints that have come before us and, and the ministry that they've accomplished in, in giving and feeding and serving and loving and teaching. Lord, we just want to get the lesson that we are not sufficient, but our sufficiency is in Christ. May we, Lord, always bring everything to you for your blessing to be broken and to be given. And it's in Jesus' name we all prayed and said, Amen. Amen.